Today, we're in week two of a series um, that we're talking to the comparison trap. And uh, really, to, just to be honest with you, this series has kind of really been like, like meaningful for me. It's really been speaking to me. And I don't know if you were here last week, and, and we're going to kind of recap some of the stuff we talked about. Um, but like, yeah, I'll be honest with you. I think I really struggle with, with comparing myself to other people. And one of the things I've learned, and I said this last week, is I, as I begin to talk about this with other people, that I often compare myself to other people, I'm learning that I'm not the only one. And that's an incredibly uh, comforting uh, feeling, to be honest with you, to know that I'm not the only person that struggles with asking questions like, well, how do I measure up? How do I measure up to other young adults that are people in my life bracket, where they went to school, what their GPA was, or, or, or what they're doing for their jobs, how much money they're making, where do they get to live, and, and things along those lines. And, and so today, week two are, uh, of our series, uh, The Comparison Trap, and, and, and I've been doing this devotional by Andy Stanley, and he's a pastor that I, I very much respect, and I think has some incredible insights into this. And, and so I'll just be honest with you, uh, a lot of the stuff we're going to kind of talk about tonight comes from him and my devotional insights, learning um, from him. But quickly get us all on the same page. Um, we're talking about this appetite that we all have to compare ourselves uh, to other people around us. And one of the things we gleaned from last week to get us all on the same page is um, that an appetite is never fully satisfied, right? I mean, you've never had a, a dessert that totally quench this desire to have chocolate ever again, right? I mean, that's never happened. That'd be awesome. Your, my waist would look different, but it's never happened. Or um, you've never had uh, a meal that ended all meals, right? That's never, that's never happened. And appetite is something that, at least on this side of heaven, will never fully be quenched. That'll never fully be satisfied. And I, I shared the story last week of going to Korean barbecue and making the mistake of ordering so much food while I was still hungry and ordered like eight plates of like pork and what a bunch of a random other stuff and trying to eat it all, getting super full. But what happened four hours later? I was penguin walking over to the, you know, the refrigerator, just staring into it, hoping something was going to jump in my mouth because I was hungry again. Why? Because an appetite is never fully satisfied. And so the main point last week was that comparison robs us. Comparison, when you and I compare ourselves to other people, it robs us. It robs us from experiencing peace. That's this inner sense of okayness. And it robs us from experiencing purpose. That's using your talents and your giftings in a way that you were supposed to. And it it robs you and I from experiencing fulfillment. That's kind of the satisfaction with your life. So last week we discovered that because you are, are constantly looking to your left and your right, trying to determine your value based on what other people are saying about you, what culture maybe impresses upon you, or... um. Yeah, uh, what, yeah, what culture, what other people, you're giving way too much authority over to people, things and influences that actually can't speak life into your existence. Because people, accolades, and culture are all kind of fluid. So they're tr- you trying to build your value on this kind of shifting substance uh, just leaves you really insecure because it robs you of instability because it places you in this trap. And last week we said there was no win in this game of comparison. It is a trap because we said we live in the land of Ur. Right? And in the land of Ur, we said, we all have these desires, and I think I have a slide for this. Um, we all want to be like richer, right? We all want to be richer, skinnier. Someone out there has the waistline that we were destined for. Uh, we're supposed to be smarter, taller, have more Instagram followers, whatever the Ur is of our lives, right? We all want it. There's this desire for it. And, and there's always someone, and the reason this is a trap, because you can always look around and find someone with more Ur than you. And so how do we get out of this comparison trap? Last week, we left off of a really insightful question. The question was this. It was, who or what am I going to use as my reference point to tell me I'm okay? Who or what am I going to use as my reference point to tell me that I'm okay? Because every one of us, if we'd be honest, is looking to someone or something to tell us if we're okay, if we're good enough. And we all look around and ask, how am I measuring up? How, How do I measure up? Am I doing okay? Um, back when I was in high school, I was in wrestling. And, um, 
<laughs> and I had this Coach Martinez. And Coach Martinez was an interesting guy. So he was kind of like this Eastern philosophy of wrestling, which is like, I didn't know there was one. And, and, and so he was kind of like, oh, you need to find this inner balance, right? Whatever that is. And, uh, and, and you need to like really get into the spirit of like, like stretching and yoga. And so sometimes what he would do is he literally like shut the door, turn the heater on, and we would just practice different stretches. It was the oddest thing, right? So, so he, and we have all these guys in singlets. It was super weird. And uh, <laughs> maybe there's something going on. Uh, and so, so what, we'd, what he would randomly have us do is like, all right, you guys need to like, you know, do like downward dog and like upward kangaroo or whatever these random, you know, kick to the stars, whatever random, you know, poses we were doing, right? And so he would like put us through these different poses. And I remember one that was like, you had to like put your leg on something and stretch super deep. And I remember feeling pretty good about myself. I remember looking around going, I can touch my toes. This is incredible, right? Like I'm glancing around. I'm looking at my buddy Mitch. Mitch looks like he's like an ice cube. He can't move at all, right? So I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And then I glance over and look at this dude, Dustin. And Dustin looks like a wet piece of spaghetti. He was like, he could do the craziest things with his butt. He could put, I, I glance over to him and no joke, he has both of his legs over his head and he's just rocking around in a circle. And I'm thinking, the f- what is this guy eating? Like, how is this happening? How, how can he do this, right? And I remember looking at him going, well, I suck, right? So who do you think I pick? as my wrestling partner for the next 30 minutes, 100% Dustin, because I'm about to beat this out of him. So, I, uh, <laughs> so I, I, we, I, I pick him to be my wrestling partner, and I pick him up as, hard as, as high as I can and slam him on his back as hard as I possibly could just to prove to my coach that he would say something. He would say, well, you'll win or lose your match on how well you can stretch. So I slammed Dustin as hard as I could on the ground and walked over to him and said, well, it doesn't look like that's how you win a match. <laughs> but I tell you that story really to, uh, to tell you this. I think, I think that we all have uh, this mirror in our lives. We're looking around asking, well, how do I measure up, right? Uh, how, what is this mirror that, that we have? Because I think we all have something and we all ask that question. So for you, the mirror of, uh, of your life could be your grades. Your grades communicate your worth, your value to yourself. Or for others, it's our dating life. If I could just get that, if I could just get somebody, they don't even need to be that attractive, right? But if I could just get somebody to think I'm lovable or I'm acceptable, then I will finally be, oh, Okay, or for maybe you, it's just this one person in your life. It's this one person that if you could get that one person to be impressed by you or then put their arm around you and say, hey, I'm really proud of you, you would feel all right. But the truth is we all have one or maybe more things that we look to to be our markers to tell us that we're doing all right. And so what is that for you? Because here's the reality. I think we all have this inward voice, this inner voice that says this. I wonder if I'm okay. I wonder if me as an individual, where I'm at in life, like if I can have peace being who I am at this moment. And here's the most, I think, incredible news. Amongst all of the world religions, amongst all of the worldviews, the great news about Christianity is it offers some insight on where that question comes from. But the better news, it offers a solution on how to get off this never-ending treadmill of comparison that leaves us depleted, exhausted, and, and to be honest, probably depressed. And the good news is the gospel offers a solution to what and who to look to. And I think a lot of people have missed it. I think because churches have presented the gospel or you in your Bible reading or whatever, you've seen Jesus differently. You've seen the church different. You've seen your relationship with God different. See, if we'd be honest, a lot of us, or maybe not us, but at least our friends or or people in our family, hold to this idea that the gospel is this like minimal entry requirements to getting into heaven. In fact, it, it saddens me that many people have reduced the gospel to like an SAT score, right? Like an entrance exam. And this, they, they view heaven as this kind of pleasure factory and the gospel is the secret answer to getting there after you die. But Christianity has so much more to offer. And we're going to talk about that so much more to offer here today. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians. Um, and if not, I'll have the verses up here on the screen. But uh, let me kind of give you some context around Galatians. So Galatians was written by a man named Paul. 
And Paul wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. Really interesting guy. And he was an apostle. And what that means is he would kind of hung around the people that literally saw Jesus walk and talk and die and resurrect and ascend into heaven. And so he had some really interesting insights on the, on the Christ's death on the cross and really the ramifications that ha- that has um, on our lives. And so in this passage that we're going to be journeying through today, he kind of speaks to the mirrors in our lives. In other words, he kind of speaks to what am I to look to to discover if I'm going to be all right? And where do I go to assign value to my life? And Paul, being the brilliant man he was, he kind of shines some light and gives us a huge clue on how to get off this comparison kind of treadmill that's exhausting. And so it says this in Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, Again, that goes right over your head because it went over mine. But in my studying, that's actually super important. When the set time, when God saw it was appropriate for Jesus to come in the world, and we have a a Christmas series designed literally just on set time um, this December that I'm really excited about. Because when you really think about the events surrounding Christ's birth, like what was going on in culture and language and roads and and the era, there's some incredible things that that were going on. And so when God saw that it was appropriate, uh, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. And so you may or may not know this, but you and I were born under this law. Now, what that really means is that you and I were born to this law, and we're going to be held accountable to this law as it was revealed in the Old Testament and as it's revealed in the New Testament. And regardless if you know this law or not, you and I are held accountable for following that law. Let me give you a silly example. When I was in fourth grade, um, I found where all of my dad kept his bullets. He was a police officer. And so my dad had a Glock, ladies, that's a gun, and they're 40 caliber that's the size of the bullet. <laughs> and so um, I found out that you could extract gunpowder with vice grips. So I thought it was going to be a great idea. So I went over to the park, and I got like a carton of my dad's bullets, 50 of them to be exactly, and I, I got all of the bullets, and I, I would use the vice grips and pop the, the, the gunpowder out of it and put it on the ground and sweep it up into plastic bags. And then I put a piece of paper in it, light it on fire, throw it, and boom, huge explosion, right? So I was super pumped. So I decided I was going to use like 40 of his bullets to make a bomb, four times bigger than the one I just used. And so I, it takes me 30 minutes to extract all this gunpowder. I probably look like a drug addict with all this powder surrounding me at the park. And, um, and out of nowhere, I hear this police officer behind me just start yelling. And so I, I, I turn around and I see this police officer has his hand on his gun. And I can just in my mind see what he saw. This fourth grader fidgeting around with like lighters and all this empty shells around me. He probably thought I was going to kill myself or something. He had no idea what I was doing, right? And so what ended up happening is he dragged me over to my house and I got in, I got in so much trouble. I just got off grounding last week, right? I got in so much trouble. And um, and one of the happens, we had to go to court, and, and my dad got in trouble. We had to pay a fine and, and things along those lines. See, I was held accountable to this law regardless if I knew that there was a law that you weren't able to do this. And as a fourth grader, I definitely didn't know there was a law I wasn't able to do this. I knew that I was violating my dad's law, but I didn't know that there was an actual law that I was violating. And I tell you that really, I guess, to communicate this to you. You and I were born into a world that has a set of parameters set on by its creator, a law that you and I are going to be held accountable to, and regardless if you consciously know this or not. And I think you and I kind of know that there is this law that exists, right? Because you and I at least have a sense of what we ought to and what we not should do, right? We, what we should do and what we should not do, right? There's this inner sense of, of kind of this moral compass. There's this universal set of, of morality that is set within the human heart. And scripture provides a framework for that. It says that God has set his, his morality in our hearts. And so here's the root of kind of this, this issue. There is enough of God's law written on your heart, and there's enough of God's law written on my heart that we kind of know we suck, right? I mean, like, we know that we don't measure up. We know that there's some standard that we don't meet. We don't even meet our own standards, and let alone this perfect one. And so we know we don't measure up, and that there's something wrong with you, and that there is something wrong with me, and that makes us really uncomfortable, And so what do we do? 
well, we, we look around and to the people at our lefts and rights and, well, how am I doing opposed to them? And we look at these other people and we try to fix ourselves by comparing ourselves to these other people. But just think how really silly that really is. Would you ever go to a junkyard and to find out what the original or proper design of a car was? No, because it's broken. And so when you and I are looking at others to see how we measure up or to see if we're okay, we're looking at other broken people and it just makes our problem worse. Because looking at, we're looking essentially at a broken mirror and it just fragments the way that we view ourselves even more and this just downward, downward spiral. And so there's this fundamental issue that I want us to get on the same page to really, really understand it's super important. And so when God created you, when God created me, he created us with three relationships in his mind. And this is called creative relationality. And the three relationships, one was a vertical relationship. This is our relationship with God, the creator of all things. The second is God created for horizontal relationships. This is the relationship you have with other image bearers, people. And then the last thing God created you and I for, the third relationship is a downward relationship with all other created things, animals, dogs, your goldfish, your turtle, whatever. Whatever. All other created things, the earth, all everything. And what sin did is it broke all three of these things. But most importantly, it shattered, it fragmented, it broke the relationship that you and I get to have with God. And so when you and I were born, we were born into a broken or fragmented relationship with our creator. And this is a fundamental cause of all of our insecurities. And it goes to the very core of our souls. And this is why whatever we do, wherever we go, and whatever we have, we will always look around and ask this question. Am I okay? I mean, how do I measure up? And the, the reality is that there's this, this insecurity in you and there's this insecurity in me that is rooted into the depths of who we are and that nothing and nobody and no accomplishment outside of heaven can restore that. And that there is this, this law that's in our soul that, that you and I don't get to measure up to. Therefore, we feel, we feel like we don't measure up. And Paul gives us some insights and he continues in the verse, says this, um, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And this is super important. The word redemption is actually a financial term, and it means to kind of restore, to, to restore what was lost or broken or, or fragmented. And, and don't miss this. What Paul is saying is, is that what Christ did on the cross somehow and in some way affected all people throughout all human history and all ages to come because we were all born under, under this law. And what kind of Christ did on the cross, kind of changes something going on there. He changes the, this, this idea that you and I were born under this law, that something changes. And so the question is, well, what changed? And he answers that in verse five. He says, um, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. I read this this last week and went right over my head. But don't, don't miss this. Really, really pay attention to this. This is so important because it, the goal of Christ wasn't to say that you're, you're just your, your, your sin is forgiven and that now you can come into this pleasure factory that all, we all think that heaven is and it has churros and ice cream in every corner like Disneyland, right? It, it, it's so much better and bigger than that. See, what God did when he sent Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, into this world was to adopt us into his family. And, and I want you to hear this... I want to take a time machine 2,000 years ago, and I want you and I to hear this as the ancient Jews would have heard this. In Hebrew, there's not a word for adoption. So what Paul does here is he wanted to take, because he wanted to use a different word. He used a Greek word. He borrowed from a different language and brought it in because he wanted the Jews to understand what was actually happening here. Because he thought that the word adoption was so expressive, so spot on for what Christ wanted for us that he borrowed from the Greek culture and used a Greek word to shed the light, to shed this light 
that the creator of all things, who spoke all things into existence, who is timeless and eternal and all-powerful, wants you to be a part of a group who he calls his, his family. And so when I use the word in the 21st century, when I use the word adoption, what do you guys think of? You think of babies, right? But that's not at all what the ancient Jews or the Greek or the Roman culture would have thought of then. They would have thought of adults because you would never adopt a baby. Why? Well, babies suck, and the second is they die, right? I mean, most of human, humans have passed away under the age of five, right? So you would have never adopted a baby. In fact, it was, it was common in the ancient world not to name your baby until they were one or two. Isn't that crazy? Like, oh, no, I don't even know how you would, oh, him, it. I don't know like, what you do, but they wouldn't even name their kids because they wouldn't make it. And so what the ancient Jews and the Greeks and the Romans, when they were in reading this verse, they would have thought of adults, and that meant something incredibly interesting. It actually would have been uncommon for you to, if you were an orphan, to open up, and you'd be like in your 20s, to open up a piece of paper and to say, congratulations, you have been adopted by, and it would have your new uh, family last name or, or who, who has essentially adopted you into their family. And that was good news because it meant that you now get to inherit all of these new blessings from this family, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to move anywhere. You don't have to sign any paper. And when Paul used this language, here is what this audience would have heard. God who knows all of your crap, God who knows all of your story, all of your skeleton, God, God knows what you do behind your closed door and what websites you go on, and God who knows all of the things that you've done and the skeletons in your closet, God who knows all of your hurts and your habits and your hangups, sent the most important thing to him in this entire world, his son, his son Jesus, to make it, make it possible for you and I to become sons and daughters of God. This vertical relationship, uh, this creative relationality link that was broken when sin entered into the human equation is now restored so that you and me can become part of God's family. So in verse 6, Paul gives us this revolutionary idea that no one and no other religion brings forth, and it says this, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now, these two words bring a revolutionary idea to how you and I get to perceive God. They give us such insight on the character and the nature of the God that we worship. And if this doesn't baffle you, the word Abba, as we talk about this, I think you have a hard heart. Let me explain. So Jesus uses this word Abba Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, moments before he's about to be murdered. He's going to be dragged into court and he's going to be, he's going to be murdered. And this word Abba was so intimate. It was so personal and near-hearted that there wasn't a Greek equivalent. And so Paul put this Hebrew word in a Greek text because he wanted to capture the relationship that we can have with God. And the word Abba literally means dad. Actually, more specifically, it means daddy which kind of makes me uncomfortable, to be honest with you, right? Like, can you imagine if, like, someone asked, like, you asked your friend, like, hey, what did you do last night? You're like, oh, the girl, whoever they were like, oh, I just, you know, spent all night in my bed just talking to daddy. And you're like, ugh. You're like, ugh. It kind of makes you uncomfortable, right? At least that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and so I have a friend, um, Rob, who, who's here, and, and he helps me in the high school ministry, and he's awesome, and I love him. And he, uh, a while ago, I asked to pray over a group of people. And uh, he said, he opened his prayer, and he said, dear dad, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, at first it kind of like, I was like, ugh. You know, it's like, dear daddy. You're like, no, I don't like, I don't like the way that that sounds, right? It makes me, ugh. And that reminded me, his prayer was incredible for me because it reminded me that the cross was not just a transactional event where you get to pat on the back and that you're forgiven and you get this ID card into heaven that you get to show at the pearly gates. And you're like, oh, no, no, I'm in. And like, this is, it's instead of California, it says heaven or whatever, right? Like, 
It's so much more than that. It's far, far, far more personal than that. You have been adopted and I have been adopted into the family of God and now you and now I get to call the creator of all things dad. See, what if, what if that understanding moved from your head? What if that understanding moved from my head and into our hearts? How would that change the way that you see yourself? In other words, how would looking into that mirror change the way you see your value or assign yourself value? See, as long as Christianity for you and as long as Christianity for me is just a categorical thing or an entrance exam into heaven or your church attendance and your good deeds gets you like a first-class ticket or, or whatever it is, you miss the beauty and you miss the power of getting a new mirror, of being able to gather your self-esteem, not from looking to your left and not from looking to your right, but from the creator who calls you his and you get to call dad. And so if this is true, if your relationship with God has been restored, if my relationship with God has been restored to what Paul's saying here on the, uh, in this event of the cross, whose estimation of you should you believe? Should you believe cultures with these people on TV that don't even look like that? Should you believe yours? Should you believe other people's? Or should you believe his? I talked about this last week and kind of saying that junior high for me was kind of rough. And it was kind of rough for me because I began to be cognizant of all the ways I wasn't measuring up. As I compared myself to my sister, as I compared myself to all the other people in my life, I just realized, like, I'm uncomfortable with who I am. I, when I looked in the mirror, I hated the way that I looked. And I finally went to my mom and said, why would God make somebody like me? I mean, I'm not intelligent. I'm stupid. I'm, uh, I'm ugly. And I'm not amounting to much in my life. And I'll never forget what my mom did. I was sitting on my bed and she kneeled by the side of my bed, looked me in the eye, and she said, son, I, I just wish you could see me as I see you. If you would stop looking over there and stop looking over here and stop comparing yourself to these other people, if you could just see yourself through my eyes, you'd be okay. You'd be at peace. You'd have so much more peace if you could see yourself the way that I see you. And then she began to tell me what she saw in me and what God probably saw in me. And I'll be honest with you, I remember this moment because it was a life-altering moment for me because my mom was communicating to me what she saw in me and it was giving me a glimpse to see what God sees in me. And so what about you? Could it be a life-altering moment for you to see what your heavenly Father sees in you? See, as long as you and I are looking around us, we will never be at peace because we will never measure up to whoever and whatever we are comparing ourselves to because this world hasn't been fair since the Garden of Eden, and there is no win in this comparison game. So whose estimation are you to believe of yourself? Is it culture's, is it yours, or is it your heavenly Father's? See, what if you began, and what if I began, and every day when I feel this desire to compare myself to other people, and that you have those exact feelings kind of well up within you, and you say, I wish I was as smart as, or I wish I was as skinny as, or I wish I was as cute as, or I wish I got to do what, whatever these people get to do. What if we would just stop the rabbit hole of those thoughts that just deepen the hole of our insecurities and just said, God, will you teach me to take my cue of who I am from you? In other words, and this is a powerful prayer and I've been praying it this, this last week. Will you help me see myself as you see me? As I was praying that, this is what came to my mind. The question, do you know what I see when I see you? And the answer to that is, he sees his child. He sees a son or he sees a daughter of his, but most importantly, he sees the beautiful exchange that happened on the cross for you and I. And he compares you to no one. You and I are not going to get to heaven. He's not going to say, why couldn't you be more like? Because he knows that comparison robs you and I. 
And last week we jumped into a verse that the, the wisest man ever, Solomon, and he, and he says this in the book of Proverbs 14.30, gives some insight into this. He says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And this is a couplet. In an ancient Hebrew, th- that means that when you interpret one by the other, so that means that the opposite of envy is peace. And the contrast of rotting is life. And all that means is that the type of peace that Solomon is talking about is one that you will never get to experience as long as you are comparing yourself to other individuals. In other words, as long as we are looking around to determine our value and our worth, we will never have peace. And so, where do we look? I think you and I need to look at one place to hear one voice, and that is the cross. And the cross is twofold, and I want to talk about it tonight. The first is it's a revelation that our sin has messed us up. But most importantly, it messed our relationship with God up. And most incredible news is it repaired it. The second fold of the cross is that we learn that God is incredibly loving and wanting to be with us. That he wanted to restore and redeem us so bad. And the cross is where God revealed our value to him. And so how far was God willing to go for his people? The answer to that is he was willing to be tortured. He was willing to be murdered. See, your value is what God was willing to pay for you, and he was willing to pay everything for you. He was willing to bankrupt heaven for you and me. There's a story in the Bible um, that I've read so many times, and and I've just skipped over its meaning, not really getting to see the beauty of what's being said there. So uh, it's found in the book of Matthew chapter 26, and let me give you some context. So this surrounds the night of Jesus being in the garden, where he uses the word Abba, and, and where He's just about to be betrayed and dragged into court on some trumped-up charges and finally to be killed. And, and I read it this last week, and it kind of clicked in my head. Let me, I, want, I want you to pay attention to two things. Number one, Jesus' willingness to be arrested because he was fully aware of what was going to happen when he got arrested. He was going to be flogged, and then he was going to be murdered. And the second is I want you to see his response to Peter. Let me read it for us. It says, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with soldiers and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, that was Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus' reply was, do what you have come for, friend, which is insane to me. I would have turned the dude like in a frog, and he just says, friend. Then the man stepped forward, seizing Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, and this is Peter, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put the sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who have drawn the sword will die by the sword. Now this is the part, verse 53. Do you think that I cannot call on my father, and he will once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And you read that, and I read that, and we go, what on earth is he saying there? Well, the the word legion is an ancient Roman military word for 6,000 soldiers. And so what does 12 legions of angels mean? It means that he would call down 72,000 angels that could protect him from going to the cross. But even then, that doesn't, that's not an emotional thing for us yet. In 2 Kings 19.35, when Jesus said that, this is what they would have had in mind. It's the account of one angel killing 185,000 Assyrians to protect the Jews. So if you do the math, 12 legions of angels would kill 13 billion people. So what is Christ saying? He's saying that if I didn't want to go to the cross, I could snap my fingers like Thanos and all of human civilization if I wanted to. But it's my love that is compelling me to go to the cross for you. 
The only person in human history who could have stopped his murder if he wanted to didn't. And he remained on that cross and allowed his creation to torture and humiliate him, all because he knew that that would make it possible for the relationship between you and God to be restored. And so in other words, you and I could join his family if we put our faith in Jesus. And so the solution to the comparison trap is the cross, where you can take your cue from the one who has made you, from the one who loves you, and from the one who has sent his son to die from you. I'm going to invite the band back up. They're going to lead us through another song. And I just want you to think about this. Can you imagine the power this would have on the human heart? To understand that the cross has fixed your relationship with God and is actively fixing the holes you have in your heart. And the most important relationship in your life doesn't compare you to anybody else. And so this week, I'm challenging you to do this. I'm challenging you to take your cue from the one who has created you because there's no win in comparison. I also want to challenge you to pray this prayer. And so when I've been praying this, next, this last week, and it's been changing my life, it's Heavenly Father, I want your will for my life, and I am far more interested in what you think of me than what others think of me. Help me see myself through your eyes. And do you know what you're going to find as you continue to pray that prayer? You're going to find what you've been looking for this entire time, and that is peace. Peace regardless of how things end up. If you didn't get into the job that you wanted or the classes that you wanted to go to. Peace when you get on the scale and you find out you were able to drop those pounds. Or peace when you get on the scale and you saw that you had too many pieces, right? You're going to find peace because you're taking your cue from the one who loves you, the one who's restored you, and the one who's redeemed you. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you, God, that you are a God that is actively got involved in our life. And Father, if these people are anything like me, I look to so many other places, God, that determine my value as an individual. I look to so many other places, God, that determine my worth. And I ask the question, am I okay? But Father, we need to look no farther than the cross to say that how far you would go for us, where we can see our value, we can see that we are loved because we are your children. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said.